I'm Elizabeth Vincentilli. I write for the New York Times, The New Yorker, and Newsday. I'm Terry Teachout, drama critic of the Wall Street Journal. And I'm Peter Marks, theater critic of the Washington Post. Welcome to episode 39 of Three on the Isle, a twice-monthly podcast from New York about theater in America. We're hosted by American Theater Magazine, a publication of the Theater Communications Group. Peter is back with us after a short breather. To be specific, he smashed his knee up a couple I of weeks did. ago. I did. Do you yeah. mean his meniscus? My meniscus. meniscus. Are you functional again? Uh, you know, day to day. Some days I'm crankier than others. Mm-hmm. How can we tell? <laughs> and, I hope, yeah, right. and I hope today's one yeah. of them. I'm cranky today. Cranky or not, we're all here in the studio for another cranky and spirited round of conversation about what matters in the current theater to you and to us. And today, on this slate, we have one of the perennial hot-button issues in theater circles, what to do about the ringtones and lights and buzzers and vibrators. No, it's a joke. It's a joke. I I haven't noticed that to be a problem. It's a joke. Oh, we got it. We understood it wasn't... It depends on the show. That's what happened at Betrayal. A vibrator went off? You didn't hear about that? Apparently there was a woman who was yes. uh, pleasuring herself. But not with a vibrator. <laughs> no, I, I added that. You much. added that. Well, that was okay. Okay, well, see, that, that, that makes it so much better. Got it. She's embroidering um, for So anyway, what anyway, is the Anyway, there's point? all these gadgets mm-hmm. that are driving some people, not all apparently, mm-hmm. buddy at the theater. We're going to talk about that. Um, and, and we're also going to talk about what some people and some institutions are doing to address the problem. And whether or not what they're doing is something they ought to be doing. Uh-oh. Okay. Oh, boy. Okay. <laughs> so then uh, we'll, we'll engage in a little best of and worst of with a trend in theater and movies that seems to have, you know, never-ending momentum, which is the art of celebrity impersonation on stage and on screen. We're gonna discuss the highs and lows of of some of the actors of late we've seen playing other people who we all know or to love or to hate. And we're gonna choose among us the best and the worst examples of the trend. And because we continue to find good stuff in the mailbag, we will dip back in again and attempt again to answer your present questions. First though, on this all talking critical heads for a a podcast (laughs) all talking no thinking yeah uh we're first we're gonna head out yonder and by that i mean yonder without the e some of you may know what i'm talking about which is the uh the technical marvel known as the yonder pouch uh if you've been to concerts for certain pop stars certain demanding pop stars lately or more to the point for our purposes to the new broadway sensation Freestyle Love Supreme, you'll be familiar with the Yonder Pouch. Uh, I believe FLS is the first show to ever require uh, audiences to put their cell phones in a it's Yonder the first Pouch. On, on, Broadway. Yeah, on, on Broadway. Broadway. Yeah. Yes, because uh, 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 Hannah Gatsby of Broadway has done it. Has, has okay. done it. So, but to, for those who don't know what that is uh, out in theater land, it's a pocket that's given to each audience member before the show in which your cell phone and your smartwatch are sealed by a lock that you can't open. Uh, and that's for the duration of the performance. You hold on to it, and at the end of the show, they unlock it. Mm-hmm. But that means no texting, no nothing during the show. I love it. About, <laughs> I will talk about so the, which more later. The reason for this new device is obvious, but not everyone likes the idea of this forced separation from uh, their devices. And, and there's a debate raging in the theater community about whether cell phone bands are... <laughs> this is the latest argument 
uh, a demonstration of privilege. Uh, and some practitioners even argue that letting people text during shows is okay with them. And the most visible example is the playwright Jeremy O'Harris, uh, who was perfectly happy when uh, Rihanna uh, texted him during uh, when she came to see his uh, Broadway debut slave play. Yeah. Which, right, well, yeah, by the way, so he basically Jeremy Harris said that it was totally fine if if his queen Rihanna like texted him. I'd like to point out that Rihanna herself has yonder pouches on a tour, so I guess she can text, <laughs> but others cannot. That's right. fascinating. It is safe to say, however, that a lot of people, actors included, are of another mind. Joshua Henry revealed this just the other night at a performance of The Wrong Man, in which he's currently appearing at MCC Theater. Spotting someone texting in the front row, he took the device out of the patron's hands and tossed it away. <laughs> so, guys, what, what say you? What do you? What? I have some very strong and personal opinions, so I want to go a little later. Okay. But what do you two feel about? Let's start specifically with the under pouch itself, the way it works, the way it's being used, what its implications are for performance. I'm perfectly fine with it. I don't have any problem with the yonder pouch because I can't spend two hours without access to my phone. Um, and my understanding is that if you get a text or an emergency, you can you just have to get out of your seat to use right. it. You can't look at it on your seat, and that seems like a fair compromise, I guess. Um, but people lived for well, millennia. Yes. Sitting in all kinds of public places, no, I, not I agree. feeling as I if they needed to have a, an instant alert to, you know, the latest CNN poll showing who's ahead in, in the Nevada primary. I mean, uh, you know, I know there's some claim that some people make that it's, you know, your, your baby is at home and you just want to make sure you're connected, you know, 24-7 to what happens to your baby. But I think that's a very, very small margin in which to justify the use of the, 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 the availability of a cell phone throughout a show. I am a thousand percent <laughs> in favor of Yonder Pouches. I wish they would do it at every show. There is no reason for people to be distracting other people with their cell phones. If you can't sit through a show because you're so fidgety or you're so ADD that, it, that what's going on the stage is not going to keep you, stay home, don't go. You have another option. I don't, I, I mean, this is, this is a public space we all share. It's about sharing, not about your, um, your, your silo and you're sitting with your beaming light that you flash around and that you, you uh, uh, completely uh, 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 impolitely uh, allow the other people around well, you to experience with you. I, I think it's pretty interesting that the vast majority of actors, at least the ones who have kind of joined in in this debate are all, they're all against people texting. It really messes up the actors. And by the way, the New York Times has a, an article about this whole debate today. And there's, there's a video of Joshua Henry taking, fetching the, phone? fetching the phone. So someone, I don't know who, it's a very clean video. So maybe it was an in-house video, but I, I've watched it like five times. It's so satisfying. It's because it's such a vicarious thrill of seeing Josh Henry do something that I've fantasized of doing for years without having the guts. Of course, I mean, I would never mm. do that. But anyway, so I've watched that a million times today. Um, but actors are pretty much against the phones. And I'd be very curious to know what the actors in Slave Play think about the playwright 
encouraging people to text during their show. I'm sure the actors can be really too happy about that. It's it's not only the uh, it's not only in Slave Play. Stephanie Ibarra, who's the uh, the new artistic director at Center Stage, has been very prominently tweeting on mm. Twitter oh, yes, about her support of cell phone use during shows. And of course, you know, the, the, I, I wonder how her um, her member her audience feels about that. And actors. And of course, and they're and the actors. If no actor wants to feel like they're they're competing with your cell phone, for God's sakes. The other thing about this is that the cell phone is a very powerful distraction. People are indeed addicted to their cell phones. Do you walk down a city street in New York without bumping into someone who's staring at their phone and not paying attention to where they're going? Uh, this happens to me every day. Actually, I do that thing now where I do not budge. I keep on like going exactly straight, and it's you kind of, it's this kind of game of like who's gonna, you know, I'm waiting. Girl, and they're gonna they're... find you in the morgue someday. <sighs> I don't. I don't, I don't recommend this. I, 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 I'm, and I mean, this idea that it's somehow, um, you know, that young people can't, you know, be. Well, lure, 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 lured it's into a theater. Not, it's not just young people. Though. I know, but there I is mean, th there is an argument being made that there's a generation that has to have it. You know that there's a that that we're we're depriving you know younger theater goers of the access they want to their phones at the theater, well, and therefore we're alienating them. Well, the other big argument is that well, but in Shakespeare's time, people were. They're responding to the eating stage. chicken and and using vibrators in their seats. That the. <laughs> I am aware of the famous Elizabethan vibration um, yeah, issue. The yeah. vibrator play. We're yeah, back yeah. to that again. Yes. That old thing. Yeah. Um, well, look, I have complicated feelings about this. You do? Yeah, I actually do. To begin with, I am a little bit concerned about the clean sweep, no exception policy, which was used at Freestyle Love Supreme. Um, if you are not going to let anybody use a device for any reason whatsoever, you're going to run into trouble. You could have run into it with me uh, because my wife is on a 24-7 transplant watch. And I was told that regardless of the fact that I needed to be available to leave the theater, that I would have to uh, put my phone in the under pouch and that if it went off on vibrate, I could go back at the back of the house. That's a thick pouch, and I'm not at all sure that I would have felt it. But in any case, I, I tweeted this, and I started hearing from other people who told me, for example, that smart watches are often used to trigger insulin doses. There are other reasons why they need to be more careful about enforcing Well, okay, but how were people rem remembering about their insulin doses before the smart It's watch? not that they remind them. It, 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 the, the watch triggers an, an insulin pump. No, right, okay, but what were they doing before the watch? Automatically. Well, th this is how they're hooked up to use it now. I mean, if, if, if you require mm. a, a watch as a triggering device for a medical pump, and you are told that you cannot go to a show because they won't let you have your watch out, they're looking for litigation, and they'll uh, get it. I, I think if you have that situation, they can certainly make an exception they for one person with a right. with a watch that triggers insulin. Right. I'm could, sorry, they, that doesn't that seems like a fair could, exception. They could, and they should. But beyond this, this is something I've been writing and talking about now for several years. I have never heard an effective cell phone announcement in a New York theater, ever. No attempt is made by any theatrical management 
to design announcements that the audience will uh, listen to, that they will pay attention what to. What would that be? People don't pay attention. It's That's quite, it. I, in fact, it's quite easy to do because I have done it. On my out-of-town shows, you know, I have crafted special announcements where everybody, and, and then you know, everybody in the audience stops because the announcement is delivered with the lights indicating that something is going on. Everybody listens to it. And then the house manager uh, clocked the number of cell phone incidents, and they dropped to nearly zero when, when an announcement is crafted so that everybody in the audience will listen to it. They're not trying. And they're looking for an easy way out, and I can understand why they would. I don't like cell phone interference in performances. I can't stand it. But I don't know that they deserve to be encouraged in such a clean, sweet measure until they've made a serious attempt to see if they can get audiences Well, the problem with the serious attempt is that everybody, or, well, not everybody, but a lot of people think, well, surely that cannot apply to me. Yeah, it's this sense of like, but... but all I, can, all I can tell you is that in the runs of three different shows in four different cities, we've had not just a dramatic decrease in what stage management calls cell phone incidents, it has dropped to zero at I've, most of the shows. I have seen ushers who are very diligent at some shows, and they think. will go up and down the rows until the moment the show begins. Yeah. And they will silence or tell people to turn them off very pointedly. Uh, they sort of single them out. Well, see, I, I think that works, that works up to a point, but I think what they need to do is be proactive during the show, which, of course, means maybe possibly more disruption. But I've seen something that worked really well is when, during shows, the ushers kind of creep back in and, and flash a, a very thin beam onto the offender. Right. That seems to work. Well, to, I mean, look, but you know, the other you, thing there is nothing to be, to, to put it as bluntly as possible, there is nothing to be done about assholes. <laughs> and if you have sure somebody... Sure there is. Ask them to leave. Well, yes, yes, but not until after they prove themselves to be such. True. By their until they made the disruption. But you can do a lot about the behavior of people who are simply thoughtless, including well, people who have never been to a show before, who are new to theater etiquette, young people to whom it would simply not occur that this behavior is bad. In classical music, you are now finding that a lot of, of classical presenters are segregating people who want to text into specific parts of the yeah, house. It's not just young people, though. I think that's like a, a, like that is not true. It's really people of all ages. And it's not just texting. People film the show. They hold that's their a, cameras well, up that's a whole and different film thing. the show. Be yeah, but well. because they are accustomed to doing this in other arenas under other circumstances, you must make your expectations clear. Don't the you management find, doesn't do that. Don't you find it fascinating, though, that it's Lin-Manuel Miranda who's championing this on Broadway? It's not like the fuddy-duddy old producers, crotchety people who are... It's, it's the most influential I, Broadway personality of our time. Is, is starting the That surprised the me. But you know what? If he himself... He's a producer of Freestyle. Right. Recipe. If he himself right. had taken part in a pre-show cell phone announcement, this guy with mm. his tremendous cultural weight, people would have listened to it if it had been handled in exactly the right way. Well, more I, would have, certainly. Yeah, more would have listened to it. I must tell you all about the best cell phone announcement I have ever heard in my life. It was in Chicago. It was at Steppenwolf. 
at a production of American Buffalo, uh, one in which Tracy Letts uh, was part of the cast. We were all sitting there, and uh, you know, there was the usual buzz in the audience. Everybody's excited. And then suddenly, in a very loud voice through the PA system, you heard somebody saying, Turn off your fucking phones! And it worked. Wow. It worked. Not a single cell phone incident. The other thing I've heard is an interesting thing. You know, the, um, they, the, the, this history, you know, this idea, one of the things that's different between now and Elizabethan times is people watch shows in the light. They yeah. didn't, there wasn't darkness, essentially, right? I mean, there were, it was lit spaces. Yeah, I forget what the, the, the formal term Renaissance light, yeah, Renaissance yeah. practices. <laughs> but anyway, the point is, you know, if the lights were up in the house, uh, you wouldn't notice the screens right. on. It's an interesting question. If that's not a problem, for example, at the American Shakespeare Center in in uh, in Stanton, Virginia, where everything is, the lights are always on. Uh, but anyway. Well, I, look, I, this is going to be a problem. Everybody thinks it's a problem. And it's going to be more and more yonder pouches. You watch. There are more it, and more coming. That's right. And, it's, and of course, it's not just young people. In fact, this is something that I hear from a lot of regional people. They say the problem for them is as much or more with older people who can't hear the cell phone announcement. I was quite struck the first time I was. Well, told. I or don't know how to turn off their phone. Or don't well, know how to turn yes. off their phone. There's a lot of fumbling of turning. You got off a the lot phone. of problems. But can we go back to the issue, uh, the, the uh, argument that some are are using, saying that it's a privilege issue? I find that very interesting. I don't get actually. that at all. I'm sorry. Well, because I think it is related to the different ways of experiencing a performance that can vary according to the communities. Mm-hmm. I, I, it's, you, it's, you buy that? Well, uh, I, I tend to buy the idea that... In other words, it's the idea that some people are dictating to other people how they should see it. Well, yes. I believe uh, they call that life. <laughs> or courtesy. Yes. Well, it's an interesting thing because actually I think it's an argument that uh, our uh, colleague uh, Lily Jenyak, who was one of our very early guests on Three on the Al, uh, she's quoted in that New York Times article uh, with pretty much endorsing that position. I hope I'm not distorting what she's saying, but I think she's pretty much endorsing that. She's like, you have to make room for a different kind of approach to experiencing a performance. I personally, it drives me crazy when someone near me is texting. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and clearly it drives Rihanna crazy too, as long as she's not the one you know, when she's not the one doing it because she has yonder pouches on her tours. And yeah. so does Madonna, who was texting. Do you remember when Madonna yes, was texting at of Hamilton? Course, of course. And, and living her privilege. Well, he refused, exactly, and he refused to meet with her backstage. Good for him. Yeah, that's and, Look, in an privilege. ideal world, everybody in the audience is completely present for every minute of the performance. That is the condition How to which How is it different than in a classroom where a teacher does not want people texting? Yeah, no different at all. I mean, that's... Okay. What I, mean, I, mean, I have been at shows where I was so bored, and I, I, I really, I admit it, I was thinking, I wish I could look at my phone right now because I am so bored. It happened just a few days ago. In fact, I was bored out of my mind. But you know what? You kind of escape into your yeah, <laughs> little but, inner and, world, and that's what imagination is for. And if you are so bored, <laughs> not you because you're being paid to sit there, but if you are so bored, you can vote with your feet. Yeah, get up and go. Get, get the up. hell out. Ooh. Well, Peter Mark says, get the hell out. Get, the, get off my lawn. You, 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 Peter. You, you, you. Oh, anyway. Anyways. But, okay. Okay. All right. This is some way to come back. My so it's knee we're is, against it. My knee feels great, by the way. Oh, that's <laughs> it? Yeah, Obviously. Yeah, thank you. This is therapy for All right. you. Okay, well, 
cranky therapy. All right, it's a bet. We're not going to solve this problem now or forever. Ever. We I didn't? think this is. I don't. You know, it's going to be an ongoing issue. We should come back to it and see how things are going. But can we turn? <laughs> can we turn now to an issue of what's happening on the stage itself, maybe, um, rather than what's going on in the seats. Um, so Lyndon Johnson is on the stage again in Robert Schenken's The Great Society uh, on Broadway. Tina Turner is coming soon to Broadway. Judy Garland is a big deal this fall in movie theaters. And all these uh, names are brought to you in essence by other names. Celebrity impersonation has become a reliable showbiz coin of the realm, so much so that at times it feels like the, uh, to push a metaphor further, the change purse is filled to overflowing. We can argue all day and night whether uh, this is a healthy phenomenon, but I wanted to ask you guys more about the art, not the box office of this. this. Do you think most of these kinds of performances work? In generally speaking, are they, are they art or are they just wax museum impersonations? And if not, what, what, goes, what goes most wrong? Do you think? Well, I, I, I think theater has just caught up to the the biopic yeah. disease that has been very, very prevalent in Hollywood for much longer than in theater. And one of the reasons is that it really works comes uh, awards time. They're awards bait, a lot of those performances. And, you know, I, I'm not a... I, personally, I'm not a big fan, except... But, you know, then, of course, it's like, except for name performance that I loved, I would say Stephanie Block as Cher, I thought was terrific. But it is definitely part, I wonder what it's like for a performer. I do too. I mean, Jessie Mueller, when she did Carol King in Beautiful, she's one of the most talented people we have on Broadway. And I kept thinking to myself, why is she doing this? Mm. For health insurance, I mean, right, I mean, obviously right. it was it was professionally a, a big step for her. Right. But I just I kept looking up there and saying, I don't want to see Carol King. I want to see you. Mm. Uh, and I, and conversely, I don't want to. I, I mean, if, if I don't want to see Stephanie Block do share, I want to see Cher do share. <laughs> I mean, it's so odd to me when it's someone who's still alive, who's still with us, who actually still performs and is being re-represented by someone who isn't as good at being her as she is, uh, it feels like a very strange, and I'm not surprised, frankly, that the show didn't really work in the end. A because I of, think yeah. that part of that was part of the problem. A lot of the most part. famous impersonation shows in the history of Broadway have been shows in which nobody knew anything about the original. Right. Like Hal Holbrook, above all, doing Mark Twain. Sure, of you course. Know, no, there, there, no evidence other than a very short silent film. It was a total creation on his part. Well, I, I mostly, that was art. I mostly agree with you, Terry. Like My version of G.C. Mule and Beautiful was when I saw uh, Audra McDonald do Billie Holiday in Lady Day and Emerson's Bar and Grill, which I did not like at all because I have zero interest in hearing this very faithful reproduction, imitation. I don't understand like what the point of it is, I, I truly do not understand. I mean, you might as well just get a hologram of Billie Holiday and get it over with. Right. I. <laughs> yeah, but there is there are gradations of this phenomenon. There are the people who are recreated on stage who you didn't know that well to begin with. So right. their verbal tics, their personality features, they're not. It's not as it is not so much a, a need 
for the audience to feel like they recognize those aspects of that character to be satisfied. Right. Others are essential. I would say that, for example, Renee Zellweger, not on stage, but on, on film, doing Judy Garland, is a failure because vocally she can't be Judy. Now, when it was done on Broadway with Isabel Keating, was it Isabel Keating who did? Yes, I'm just going blank. She yeah. was uncanny. Yeah. Right. That felt uncanny, and maybe there was a different vocal production issue with when it's live. I don't know. But but Renee Zellweger doesn't. And and Judy Garland is the voice. I mean, it's what she could produce that emotion, that wild kind of uh, uh, power and emotive beauty that she had in her voice. That's why you care because it's her. So I mean, it, so there are sort of levels at which you know a vocal rin, a, a impersonation, or how would you call it, called, vocal reproduction of a performance can be quite um, powerful and enjoyable. I have a special but, perspective on this because I have actually written and had produced two plays that do this mm -hmm. in completely different ways. Mm -hmm. And the first one was Satchmo of the Waldorf, which is my one-person play, in which the same actor plays Louis Armstrong. Joe Glazer, his manager, and Miles Davis. Um, he's crossing a race line to play one of these men. There's a huge age gap with the other one. Two of them are extremely familiar to anybody who's ever seen any, any film, especially Louis Armstrong, but most people know what Miles Davis' voice sounds like. And when we first started working on this, I was really thinking, what do I want? And I, the first thing I realized was that if somebody tried to do Satchmo's voice uh, every night for two weeks, they wouldn't be able to talk after mm. that. Mm. That technically it would be very difficult. But I also realized that I didn't want a literal imitation. I wanted, because not only do you have Armstrong, but you have somebody, Armstrong looks a very specific way. And I just, I wanted the actor to bring his own game to it. And so in the script, I said that the actor need not resemble any of the characters physically and should suggest Armstrong's voice rather than imitate it. Mm. And that has worked. We've had, in the 18 productions of Satchmo, we've had, I've lost count, I mean, nine or ten people have played the part, I guess. And the ones I've seen have all been radically different. None of them look like Louis Armstrong mm. in the slightest. Mm -hmm. And it just doesn't matter. Right. And I meant for it not to matter. On the other hand, I wrote another play uh, two years ago called uh, 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 Billy and Me. Good to remember. Yeah, I mean, it took me a moment to remember. Isn't that terrible? <laughs> Which is about uh, Tennessee Williams and William Inge. Now, everybody knows what Tennessee Williams looked like. No, no, and, no, no. You're assuming so much here. I'm, I've got well, to say. Okay. I mean, everybody, oh, everybody I mean, likely no. to go to a play about Tennessee yes. Williams. Okay, <laughs> that is a good yes, rephrase. Has, has seen <laughs> pictures of him and very likely has heard his voice. Uh, and he's the narrator in the play. And so we decided going in that that needed to be something like an impersonation. Uh, not, not what I said to the actor was, don't give me the rich little uh, Tennessee Williams. Make him come out of you. But we want to make you up to really look like him. Now, there is film of William Inge. He actually appears as a character in Splendor in the Grass. Uh, he's a preacher. But most people have no idea what he looked like. So that wasn't an issue. We were very lucky in that we were able to cast an actor 
who it was kind of eerie looked like William Inge. It was just dumb luck, though. We didn't pick him for that reason. Right. But there are all sorts of different ways to go at this, and it depends on what you want. If you're doing a musical on Broadway, a commercial musical, what you want is an imitation. If you're doing, if you're trying to create a work of art, what you want is something where the actor brings his or her own stuff to the table. And in that case, you want them to go in whatever direction they want to. And in a way, it, it might be just wonderful if they looked and sounded nothing like the person. We had, I won't name his name, because I'm hoping that someday he'll do the show. But there is a rather well-known black character actor who likes Satchmo. And it would have been the dream of my life to have him do it somewhere. And he said, I just can't do that. I don't look anything like him. And this was the interesting thing. He said, I don't have the right skin tone. So Eddie Murphy, if you're listening... Turn me down. <laughs> no, I just, I couldn't, I couldn't argue with that. I understood his reasons. He would have been so good, it would have broken your heart. Well, but you know, there is this issue. I, you know, I just saw The Great Society on Broadway. Did you oh, guys yes. see it? Haven't seen it yet. Um, I, I would say that it was so irksome to me to watch Brian Cox pretend to be Lyndon Baines Johnson among many sort of inadequate, I thought... Uh, portrayals of these famous figures from the 60s and 70s that I'm very familiar with. But it really, he just didn't, I think there is some basic things you have to do. If you're pay, playing LBJ, the voice that rings out has to have that that Texas twang. It has to sound like it's a good old country boy from Johnson well, City to some degree. For me. Up to a point, Lord Copper. I mean, remember, <laughs> remember Frank Langella in Frost Nixon. Didn't look like him. Didn't sound but like him. But for, yeah, for about 10 yeah. seconds. He had I was, other right, skills but, that made well, that for happen. A, for a couple of minutes, I was thinking, hold on, Hoss, this is not working. And within five minutes, I was there and I stayed there because I was seeing something that was coming out of the interior of a great actor. Actually, to me, a good example of how to do it, and it's a play that I have a lot of reservations uh, about is what Lucas Nate did in Hillary and Clinton, mm. where yes. when we good saw it, when we saw it on Broadway, uh, uh, Laurie Metcalf played uh, Hillary, Hillary Clinton, and and John Lithgow played Bill, and they did and not, they did not try to imitate them. Right. It was just well, and they were instructed not to. As they I get, as and I they really do not look. And in fact, the, the 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 weak point was the actor who played Obama, who was really more in the imitation. Yeah. Uh, register. Uh, Maybe it's that you so, can't mix the the methods in a show. Yeah, it was really, mm, that didn't work. Right. I mean, a lot of things didn't work, but I, I really liked that approach of not having them even try to imitate them. You can tell they didn't start, or maybe they did, but I mean, it didn't feel like, like the work was not obvious. My problem with a lot of the imitations is that you know they spend like a gazillion hours watching YouTube videos and trying to get every little inflection down. And that work sometimes gets in the way. Yeah. To me, the, the, the best performance I've seen of, of impersonation on Broadway is John Lloyd Young as Frankie Valli ah, in Jersey yes. Boys. I thought in every way, that vocal performance was so resonant of that sound. Mm -hmm. it's so, it was so pleasantly took me back to the Four Seasons. Without it being, I didn't really know who Frankie Valli appeared like off stage, yeah. so it didn't matter to me. But that one characteristic carried me all the way through that piece. 
and that was really the point. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was the whole point of Jersey Boys, essentially, mm-hmm. was right. to hear that sort of that, that falsetto that, uh, that well, Frankie Valli had. looking back to bests, I think I might have to pick Bobby Morse in Capote. Mm, that's another good one. I mean, that was eerie. It was just. <laughs> that's a good, it was that's eerie. a good word. Yeah, eerie is a good and word that's, for doing. If, this. if you're going to go with it in that direction, if yeah. you're going to try to duplicate, eerie is what you want. All right. Well, we're going to see what who else who else is Broadway going to see Tina pull soon. Out of the, oh, Tina! I'm, I'm very right? much looking forward to that. I really like Adrian Warren. So yeah. Uh, oh, I, sh- I should mention before we go on that one of the one of the directors of Satchmo said to me, uh, "I don't like doing taxidermy plays." Oh, that's perfect. Yeah. That's a good that's yeah. how I liked to put that. it. But uh, I mean, that. again, I'm saying this all this with great love for the performers. Wondering, I mean, sure. I am a really huge fan of what Stephanie Bluff did in the Share Show for many reasons. So, um, you know, I think it's also when a performance really touches you for whatever reason, we get into this subjective. Sure. Thing. And might have been better if she didn't have to do all the mannerisms. It might have been better. If it's she hard had. to tell. Yeah, maybe. I mean, she was, she, she was, she, she got to me, and I'm not a Cher fan in particular, but she got to me into to the it's essence a, of something. It's a different kind of pleasure. Yeah, yeah it's, it's a, a different, different kind thing. Of anyway, so uh, we're going to move on to our next segment, and uh, we are very lucky that we have really, <laughs> really engaged listeners. <laughs> We always come up with great questions, uh, and and this batch has some um, some really good ones. Um, and uh, the first question is from David Brown, who oh, points bef- out. Before we start with oh. the letter, standing in for our uh, oh yes, our, was... our correspondence is our producer, Erica Wong. Uh, so the first letter is from David Brown, who uh, points out a critic's uh, deep-seated hatred for production of Miss Saigon. Uh, and and David says the critic quote actually calls out to stop producing this show. So Erica, can you uh, get in there? <laughs> As theater critics, do you feel that it is within your purview or appropriate to voice the rejection and or the cessation of theatrical productions? Should, mm. should you tell them to stop doing a show? Well, we should start well. by saying that the critic in question here is our friend Lily uh, Janyak from uh, San Francisco. Yes. And that was a, quite a serious piece in which she said what many people have said, which is that Miss Saigon is a show that it's time to retire for all the obvious reasons. I am not comfortable. I can't think of a situation where I would be comfortable saying a show should not be done. I don't know. A musical number you'd be good with. Well, Shapoopy, of course. <laughs> that, go, that goes without saying. Thank you for correcting me, Terry. That's true. I, I am triggered by Shapoopy endlessly from the music man, and I have no idea how I'm going to endure it when it comes to Broadway. Oh, you'll cope. Uh, and, and Shuler Hensley has to sing it. Anyway. I have not, I can't imagine, I can't remember a time I would ever have advocated that. I just don't think that's necessarily what I'm here to do. I'm here to sort of react. I'm a more reactive kind of uh, 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 part of the audience, I think, than someone who really should be dictating to a, a, a and I'm, this is no, uh, no reflection on my fellow critic who was obviously moved in a very smart and astute piece right. to, to take this position. Uh, I just don't know that that's, I think it's better to point out what's wrong with it than to go so far as to be that committed to, to, to ceasing the, yeah. a work of art. Yeah, I, uh, I mean, there are plays I would be happy never to see again. There are movies I hope never to see again. And in a very few cases, 
there are movies and plays that I would be glad never to see again for political reasons. Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, for example. I just cannot endure that anymore. Oh, you mean kidnapping women? Yeah, I mean... So you'd marry them? It is so... And singing and dancing about it. Yes, it's so Neanderthal. dancing is so good. I know, and so I would never suggest that all prints of the film should be destroyed. And uh, I, I'm, I, we have, in, in, a, in our age of what is now being called cancel culture, you know, I am far more inclined to say, okay, do it, and then we'll talk about it. We'll argue about it. We'll hate it. We'll like it. But if you've got the nerve to do it, if you have something new to say about it, and as you both know, I did not like the, the Broadway revival of Oklahoma, but these are serious people who are attempting to, to make Oklahoma speak to a new generation in a way that that generation finds intelligible, maybe palatable. Uh, they're not saying, let's never do Oklahoma again. Uh, so I'm, I'm not inclined to uh, uh, dropping the blade on shows. I'm really not. I, I agree with both of you. I mean, I don't really have much to add to that. I, I, uh, I remember, in fact... <laughs> going back to Slave Play, but when it was off-Broadway, there was a huge, well, not huge, but there was like a kind of very vocal uh, group of people who really wanted the play to not exist and to be gone and were really offended that it was just produced. And and it turns out that a lot of them hadn't seen it. And many of them had right. not seen yeah, it and seen not seen it in principle. And I just cannot endorse this kind of attitude, no matter what I would think about Slave Play. I also think that it's enough, very often, you know, out your disapproval of a, of a show, if you make it clear that a play or musical offends you in some way, mm-hmm. it's going to, the, the, the clear, the clear message is I'm not going to particularly be favorable the next time right. you bring this into my sphere. Right. Uh, so I, it has the same effect without actually saying it. And mm-hmm. and also, it leaves open the possibility that, you know, somehow somebody in some meta way may be able to bring Miss Saigon into a context that is not offensive yeah. to uh, to a large portion of the I'd have the trouble Asian imagining what it was. But, I mean, I have friends who think that the Mikado should never be produced again. Of course. It is one of the great and supreme masterpieces of Western musical art. I just don't buy that position. Uh, And if you've seen the film Topsy Turvy, as my wife Hillary and I were watching it last week, you know why. Uh, But the Mikado can't be produced in the United States anymore. Nobody will touch it. And that's the reason why. They know they'll get protests over it. Uh, I hate to see that happen. Well, um, we have the next question coming up from William Pate. Take it away, Erica. Last spring, I found myself three rows from the stage in a performance of Chicago, a good musical that was so awful I nearly asked for my money back. Yes, that bad. There are a fair number of long-running musicals occupying valuable real estate on Broadway. Are any holding up enough to justify even a discounted price? And is there any value in critics revisiting shows that are still being pushed on audiences after running for years? I want to answer those last two questions. The first one is, I don't know, because we don't, they don't send us back to review long-running shows. And I think there would be tremendous value in our revisiting shows that, that have had long runs to see what condition they're in. All things being equal, I think we ought to do that. Um, but our space is limited, our time is limited, resources are limited. Uh, and yet, when I think about how valuable it would be for me to re-review Chicago as opposed to certain shows 
that I'm giving real estate to on Broadway. Uh, it would be a much bigger service to the public for me to say to them either, you know, Chicago's in great shape. It's well-maintained. Uh, you'll get a real pleasure out of seeing it. Or, you know, this show's a mess and you don't want to be seeing it anymore. But I can't answer that question. Well, I actually, been. coincidentally, I did see, I assume William Pitt is talking about the Broadway production of Chicago. Yeah, I and, assume so. And coincidentally, I saw it again. And yeah. this was my fifth time. Really? <laughs> uh, including the, the, well, not the original, but I did see uh, the Encore's production. Yeah. Uh, and then, so I've seen it many five times uh, total. And then coincidentally, I saw it again uh, just a few months ago. Not There was a, a long-running cast member who was leaving, and I was writing about her. So I saw the show again, and I actually thought it was in very good shape. Uh, so I'm I'm very intrigued by that reaction, and I'm wondering why, what kind of prompted that version well, from, from. Could William. have been a bad night. Well, years uh, ago, could, when yeah. I was when I was a critic at the Times, I did go back and re-review long-running shows, mm -hmm. and one of them I went to was Cats at the time, and it was sort of like going to a broken-down shack in the woods. It felt like there, I saw tears in the in the backdrop, yes. and even though it's a garbage dump, it, <laughs> it looked like a dump. And some of the cats seemed a little tired of what they were doing. They, I didn't. I don't know if I don't remember if I actually told them I was going back or I just bought a ticket. I don't remember, but it was a good thing to do. And I will, but I will also say that part of Broadway's luster is the idea of things that run on and on and on. It's been a tradition, at least for the last 30 years, anyway. Yes. I mean, there was always a long-running show, even in, back in the 60s, even Tobacco Road, for God's sakes, back in the, in the you know, in the, in the in, way... In the voice of the turtle, one of the longest-running shows and in history. Life with Father, I yeah. think. I mean, these were, you know, there are the war horses that still people who... Never go to the theater, ever sort of hear about when they, you know, and they venture in from wherever they live and they want to see one thing and it's Phantom of the Opera. Which so I saw five years ago, which was great. So, well, Hal Prince was famous for maintaining mm -hmm. his shows. Right. And that's part of the thing. And it'll be interesting yes. to see what happens now that he's no longer with us. Right. That's a good question. That's a very good point. He did go back. Yeah. I mean, that's, back. look, if I could change one thing about what I do, this might be it. I think I could, we could be doing a real service to our readers by seeing if long-running shows are being maintained. More to the point, I think, because the shows that are really, I think, call for a revisit are not necessarily the things that have been running for 20 years, but the things that have been running for a year or yeah. six uh -huh. months. Yeah. Because often we see it at a point at which they have not really reached the top of the roller coaster. Uh -huh. They just are getting there, but they're not quite it's... at the sort of the pitch perfect moment. And right. I will take as an example the band's visit, which I went back to. I was just going to bring that one up. And yes. they, they were in such a groove by the, I would say, two thirds into that run that it was really worthwhile seeing that again. And sometimes you do get to see things because they do invite you back for a replacement act. For right, mm -hmm. and I always take advantage of that when I can. And that helps, but usually that's only you know a year into a run because that's when the contracts run out and that's what they're most interested in. But even I went back to, to Kill a Mockingbird three months after first seeing it on Broadway and things were clicking. The they were so tuned into the audience that the laughs were better that the you know the flow was they were more in tune with each other. I so 
that's an interesting question of whether well, we should act. Well, you know, at what point in a production? Right. What's interesting a, a too, review? I I, uh, I went back to Dear Evan Hansen. I would say so. I had seen it off Broadway and then on Broadway when it opened, and then I returned. I can't remember, but maybe like a few months in. Right. Uh, and I thought that Ben Platt's performance had so deteriorated. He was speaking so fast. He was rushing into it. Interesting. He was overdoing the, the hysterical crying. I was embarrassed for him. I think that must have been around the Tonys, I guess. Uh, I, I could not believe what I was seeing. A show that I really, really liked a lot. Uh, Did the, you write about it? I can't. No, it's did. hard actually. Yeah. Right. Oh, about that particular. Yeah. No, I, I did not. I, I, I was really shocked. I was really shocked that the director. I mean, obviously the director cannot be there all the time, but I, I thought the performance had really. Yeah, I think de deteriorated is the right word. I, it was awful. Well, awful. The but, other side of the coin. The, the I I don't re-review, but occasionally later in the run of a show that I have liked, the Wall Street Journal will do some sort of presentation connected with it for s subscribers. And I went back to the last Broadway revival of Present Laughter toward the end of the run. It happened to be the night that they were taping it for TV. And uh, so, I mean, you know, this was Kevin Klein and a cast of geniuses. And they were great on opening night. I won't ever forget that. But they were loose mm. in the good way by the time I came back to see them. Yeah, and that show, it show had grown. The, uh, and the other thing to rem remember is like, you know, this is a New York issue. Maybe right. sometimes in Chicago, occasionally in Toronto with mm -hmm. longer runs. In, the re in regional theater in Washington, for example, nothing runs more than really, you know, two right. months. That's yeah, the exactly. thing. But the, and the only other comparative thing you could do is look at a tour that's been on the road a long yeah. time. Because you know, after running into the fifteenth or twentieth city, you, know, you do have to wonder what happens to the energy, especially when actors are coming in and out of the show, and they, you know, and they're being, different every night. They're being directed by the stage manager, usually. sometimes. Usually, yeah. sometimes. So right, and so there's there are there are other um, ways to look and, at and this. And aside from another way to look at it is aside from the uh, the, the issue of quality is the issue that's. A really great number of prime, a great amount of prime real estate is blocked, and is not accessible to new shows. And you you do want that that new fresh blood. I I don't know what you guys think about that, but what do you think about the news that the there's going to be is it the Biltmore one of the Broadway theaters is going to show the Belasco the Belasco right the Belasco is going to show uh, the Irishman the Martin Scorsese movie for a month. Yeah. That what just. What is that? Netflix is going to show The Irishman from this November 1st I'm going to December say that 1st. I find that completely offensive. Like I a agree. Lot, it's a very, lot, I found it sad. It's, it's like that's worse it's than, than yeah. Phantom of the it Opera playing for 30 years. It's sad that, that, um, that a theater is now... I mean, because it's like... It feels like it's the creeping crud, so to speak, of, you know, of failure coming over the... You know, when you're turning... Uh, Broadway theaters into movie That is theaters. an incredibly uh, cynical decision on the side of the landlord there, of the theater That's landlord. That's the Schubert's. I want to read you all something. Um, uh, earlier this year, uh, I wrote a column about William Goldman's book, The Season, uh, mm. which is, he, he saw every show on Broadway and wrote a book about right. what Broadway is like. And he talked about this phenomenon. And in doing so, he interviewed a, a, one of the great supporting actors of Broadway, Barry Nelson, who appeared in a sex farce called Cactus Flower, 
Oh my uh, God! Which I ran love for, it. Right, which ran for one thousand two hundred thirty-four performances and has never been revived on Broadway. And he asked Nelson, "What was this like?" And this is what uh, Goldman wrote, and this is Nelson's answer. He quiets for a moment and fiddles with his glasses. A serious, intelligent man, surrounded by two years of memories, two years of his life, maybe 800 performances, maybe 2,000 hours gone, 2,000 hours spent as a silly, philandering dentist, buffeted between a semi-frigid receptionist and a nitwit mistress. Nelson puts his glasses on, turns to go, and says, I don't think any actor really likes long runs. I don't think humans were meant to do them. <laughs> and there's okay, the tragedy, well. my friends. And when an actor does get in a long run and maintains the performance as they're supposed to do, God bless him. It's a living. There you go. Well, I do wish we had more time to go back to things and see them the way. That's a, that was a great little anecdote to Close Isn't that it? with, Terry. Yeah. Um, but now it's time for us to go back to one of our tried and true formulas, <laughs> talking about shows of note that we want you to know about. So, Terry, why don't you start? Well, I will, because I saw Slave Play a couple of nights ago. It, I did not see it off-Broadway. And I was careful, as I am under these circumstances, to hold myself aloof from the show. I did not read any reviews of the off-Broadway run. I knew only in the most general way that the play had been very controversial. And so I was really coming fresh to it. And the first thing that struck me about it, I mean, for those of you who have seen it or now you've read the reviews, uh, in Slate, Slate Play is a three-act play. The acts run continuously for two straight hours. Uh, the first two acts are about, what you first see are three interracial couples who appear to be white people having sex with black slaves. And it's a farce, it's a comedy. And in the second act, you realize that what they were actually doing, this is the spoiler, everybody, was uh, they're in therapy, they're having sex therapy uh, because they're having problems that are specific to the fact that they're interracial couples. And in the third act of the play, which is, I, I didn't clock it, but it can't be more than the last half hour, uh, you see one of the couples who, whose relationship has been sundered as a result of the therapy are trying to find their way back to something that works. So to begin with, even though this is a reveal, I guessed about, I don't know, 10 minutes into act one that this was role playing. It, it, there's, there was no reveal for me. I, I realized this is what it has to be. And it went on and on and on. It was clearly, I, I, kept, I remember thinking, do, do you all remember George C. Wolfe's show, The Colored Museum? Of course. Yeah, this brilliant program of playlets and sketches about the black experience in America. And I thought if, if the author of Slave Play, Jeremy O. Harris, had cut this down to 20 minutes, it would have been the most brilliant skit imaginable. And yet, he made it two acts of a three-act play, beating every possible comic change into the ground, saying everything repeated times. It was flabby. It was repetitious. It was, I hate to say this, but it's the only possible word. It was amateurish. 
And then suddenly, in the last part of the play, it's as though he grabbed the gear shift and pulled it back, and suddenly there was a real play going on on stage about these two people whose relationship had been ripped apart. It was like a cross between Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf and Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. And I thought for this 30 minutes or however long, however long it ran, I thought, okay, yes, there is talent here. But this very talented writer, I think, has been disserved by having a show move to Broadway that wasn't ready to go there, that isn't mature enough to be there, and I don't think it's going to serve him well. I just don't think it adds up as a play. And uh, it has some brilliant performances in it. It has brilliant touches of staging in it. Um, but I don't think it's got the stuff. I really don't. I saw it off-Broadway and then again on Broadway. And off-Broadway, I, I, felt I felt more of what you were saying, uh, Terry, certainly in terms of the, uh, that this was a young writer. He's 30, to be exact. Yeah, and he's, he's still in he, Yale Drama School. We graduated this year from Yale right. Drama School. Just finishing Yale Drama yeah. School. And I didn't like his other play, Daddy. I didn't think that worked. The one at the new group, I thought that was pretty much a disaster. But I felt, in watching it this time, I was kind of riveted. And I thought that they had solved some of the problems that they had originally. One of them being, the first time I saw it, it was not at all clear, uh, and I don't know how you experienced it this, uh, this, first, this one time, uh, that the first three scenes are are a kind of um, are a kind of dramatization that they're going through. That it's not actually Civil War times. I think I got happening. I think I got onto it midway through the second. I mean, they give you little yeah. touches of indication, even in terms of costume and and some sound effects. But but generally speaking, I found there was a through line through the through through the three pieces, and one of them for me had to do with the ability to listen to what was being said. And, it, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a tough thing in some ways for a white audience to, to hear so much of a critique of the way they don't listen to black people and the way they experience the world. And the more I let down my guard and let that wash over me and try to experience it from that, the more I got out of it. Yeah, but the action there was in the last part. Critics should not rewrite the plays that they're watching. That's, that's really an important rule. But as I was sitting there, I was thinking, you could have done this as a two-character play, and you could have brought forward their experience in therapy into this last section. It all could have been done with two people with the emphasis on their relationship. That, of course, it was that couple where the you're not listening to me uh, problem was voiced most passionately, most most effectively, and that grabbed me the, the hardest. Mm. But I just kept thinking the, the real play here is the last act, and it's a long time to wait through a skit that's been blown up to, to 90 minutes in length. Yeah. Okay. We're not gonna. Uh, we're gonna... I, I <laughs> hey, actually. I think Elizabeth is sort of between I did, us. No, I detested it off Broadway, and I. I enjoyed it more on Broadway. I think it's been tightened in in very uh, in very good ways, and I absolutely love several of the performance in there. Mm, yes. I think uh, uh, Annie McNamara, as it's her Broadway debut, it's unbelievable. She's a staple of off Broadway and. 
uh, her first scene is absolutely a comic masterpiece of, of timing, of precision. I, she will be nominated or she deserves to be nominated for, for Tony for just that one scene. Um, I really have issues with the middle section. I think the, the two psychologists are ridiculous uh, and not in a good way uh, because the, the, the satire there does not work at all. Uh, but, but there's enough, um, I just don't think the play is, that sh is as sharp and as provocative as it thinks it is, um, because we have seen a lot. Um, but You know, when everybody tells you that a play <laughs> by an unknown playwright is controversial, it's not. Everybody it, likes it, because it's probably telling them what they already agree with and want to hear. I don't know but, about that. But, and partly, I also, but I think some of it works. Um, some of it does work. I don't mind the shifts in tone. I think that's kind of... Uh, what I really did enjoy. Oh, no, I like them a lot, actually. And I'll say one other thing about, you know, bringing along a playwright who, you know, may not or may be ready for quote-unquote Broadway. You know, it's yeah. it's nice for me not to see the same kind of play on Broadway that I feel like, you know, gets redone over and oh, over I and over. I completely over. agree. Sure, I mean, course. especially as, as so, we have I, another Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf coming in the spring. Oh my God. Do I we really? Right, I don't really think it'll hurt his career. No. Um, it may, he may not, I'm not, I, who knows? I don't know what to make of his career, I don't know where it goes or whether he wants to stay, you know, writing plays or whatever it is. But I think that this will, the reception is encouraging enough by enough people that it's not going to feel like uh, he was he was overpraised particularly. It's got it's got something. This thing, or people would not be uh, responding to it. At least the the cognoscenti. I don't know if it's, I don't think people for you know it's not going to be a tourist hit. That's for sure. But it's also a, a, it's a limited engagement run. So I'm just I, afraid it's going to hurt him. That. This is obviously a person oh, of real... No, I don't think so. I well, really don't no, but think so. But I know, of course. <laughs> but let me, let me say, I mean, this is a person of real talent. And there are a few things more destructive to a, a career that's taking shape than hitting the target the first time out of the box. Because it sets up expectations for you and in you that are enormously difficult to live up to. And I, I, I hate to say it, but the obvious reference point here is Ralph Ellison, who spent his entire life trying to follow the success of The Invisible Man and did not. Uh, I'm not saying that this, that, that this is the new Ralph Ellison. I just, I, I am concerned about the effect of a, of a success like this on somebody who's not there yet. Okay. Anyway. Well, Let's let's uh, let's agree to disagree on yeah. this one and move on. Elizabeth, yeah. what do you want to uh, talk my, about? My pick actually is the uh, musical where Joshua Henry uh, picked up someone's uh, cell phone and, and 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 kicked it out. Uh, it's the Wrong Man by Ross Golan, and uh, that's his first musical. And actually, Ross Golan is a very interesting case because I've been familiar with his work for years and years and years. And uh, he, he's actually, he's one of those um, songwriters for hire uh, who's employed and makes a very good living in the modern, uh, you know, pop songwriting factories. He's written hits for Ariana Grande and, and, and uh, Maroon 5 and Selena Gomez. And he also hosts a podcast, uh, a fascinating podcast called And the Writer Is, where he interviews 
other songwriters for hire like himself. Like he's t he had a great episode with Justin Trenter, a uh, really completely insane one with Bibi Rexa. Um, I highly recommend uh, uh, his podcast. But anyway, so he wrote a concept album uh, called The Wrong Man, and it's now been staged by Thomas Kale, who directed Hamilton, and with arrangements by Alex Lacamoire, who did the arrangements for Hamilton. So the very good pedigree there. And, and the show is not perfect. It's entirely sung through. And yeah, well, that's a hard thing to bring it's off. It's very, very hard. And there are dramatic issues and, and character issues, but I was completely with it the entire time. And a lot of this has to do with Joshua Henry's performance, which is a staggering performance. Absolutely incredible. Uh, I highly recommend it if, just for that. It's, it's absolutely incredible. He actually sings almost every song, which is nuts. Uh, and clearly they had to take pains to give some songs to other people just so he could have a break. Is it true that he sings a song called Blow High, Blow Low, uh, A Cell Phone Throwing We Will Go? Yes, that's <laughs> yeah. the show. That's absolutely the yeah. show. You got that right. No, great. Uh, that's great. So anyway, so not a perfect show, but a very encouraging one. And I, I, I really hope that Ross Golan sticks with this because he writes incredibly catchy tunes. Uh, the guy is, clearly knows what he's doing. Uh, and it's an MCC, and I actually I would not be surprised if that had a bigger life somewhere. And it, if people, if you if you've seen the, that earlier musical uh, Murder Ballad, it's a little similar-ish. Mm. You know what you're making feel. me think of is Bathtubs Over Broadway. That that's the, oh my God, the, the documentary industrial. about industrial music. Was talk about talk about songwriters for hire. Yeah, uh, Ross Golan. And, and Peter? So I'm going to be quick because we're uh, we, we feel like we're going over we're a bit yakking. here. So I'm just going to mention a, 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 a terrific production of Fairview, Jackie Sibley's Drury's uh, Pulitzer Prize winning play about the white gays and the black gays and how they differ and how they cross and how incredibly insane things get in in, in a in a uh, on the stage. And uh, I thought it was a terrific indication of that the play has legs. It's a really fine uh, work uh, uh, by Willie. Where, where, and where, where, where and is it? Mammoth. Oh, okay. Oh, Willie oh, Mammoth. Yeah. Yeah, okay. uh, and uh, you can feel the same discomfort of the audience with that piece as you do with Slave Play. Uh, that sort of translates to uh, DC and I can, I can feel the, the, the tension in the audience when I'm seeing it between those who really dig what's going on and those who just are resisting every minute of it. And so I am very pleased <laughs> by that response. I think that's yeah. that's absolutely fine. It's a good response. Well, okay, over and out for us. We have got another podcast in the can. It's been fun. It always is. It's great for all three of us to be in the studio at the same time with Erica. Our thanks to our questioners and to all of you for listening. Until next time, I'm Terry Teachout. I'm Elizabeth Vincentelli. And I'm Peter Marks. Our producer is the gifted Erica Huang. You can follow us on Twitter at at3ontheisle, spelled out, and write to us at at3ontheisle at gmail.com. And do let us know what other topics uh, you'd like to hear on future episodes. We're, uh, <laughs> the lines are open. We, we, may, we may not do it, of course, but... <laughs> <laughs> you never know. Uh, and don't forget to leave a review or a rating on iTunes or Google Play. Keep looking for us on your podcast dial because we'll be with you again soon on the aisle.